Project Zion Podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts the Restoration offers for today's world. We aim to feature a wide variety of guests and panelists with roots in the Restoration tradition from Community of Christ and our friends in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music has been provided by Mark Abernathy. You can find his music at www.mark-abernathy.com. Josh Mingelson, and I'll be the lone voice for this episode. This episode is one of what will hopefully be many extra shot episodes that are shorter in length of time, but hopefully not content. This episode I've titled Fireflies Let the Spirit Breathe. For many that have lived in the Midwest during childhood and even as an adult, one favorite pastime is catching fireflies. I wouldn't know from experience because growing up in Utah, I don't recall ever seeing them. However, I did see them during the nights when I spent a summer in Illinois. I loved the way they silently lit up the hillside. In the still night air, they eased into light and then eased off. The ebb and flow of their light made the hillside appear to be quietly breathing. For those that are firefly enthusiasts, they will get nets to catch them and then transfer them to mason jars. I've read that if you catch enough of them in a single mason jar, the fireflies will provide enough light whereby you could read a book. It got me wondering, if you keep them sealed in a jar, how long would they live? Without a doubt, if you left them in there for too long, they would die. It got me wondering, so I visited a website called firefly.org that promotes releasing them back to nature after you catch them, since in recent years their numbers have been declining. Firefly.org says, once you have a jar of fireflies, don't keep them for longer than a day or two. Let them go, preferably at night because that's when they're most active and able to avoid predators. If you keep them for longer, the fireflies are likely to die. I understand the impulse to scoop up and preserve the evening experience, but once caught in jars, it's a matter of time before they will need to get out and breathe again in their natural element before they are dead. The simple nature of the thing is you can't preserve the experience. If you want to keep the experience, you must let it go to relive it. Using fireflies as a metaphor for spirituality, early in the Restoration Movement, Joseph Smith and a small flock of followers saw themselves as a once-again living church. Joseph dictated Doctrine and Covenants section 1. In verse 30 it says, And also those to whom these commandments were given might have power to lay the foundation of this church and to bring it forth out of obscurity and out of darkness, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually. I've seen it explained that the phrase, only true and living church, is a hendiadis, or a one through two. A hendiadis is a figure in which a complex idea is expressed by two words connected by a copulative conjunction, to look with eyes and envy, instead of with envious eyes. To illustrate another example of a hendiadis, in the King James Version of the Bible, Luke 21.15 says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, 
Instead of a more common way of putting it, I will give you a wise mouth. Likewise, as a possible Hendiadis, what the one true and living church would be saying is the one truly living church. To defend this as a possible Hendiadis, I will say that's the only restoration scripture that a person might use to try to defend that Joseph's church was or is the one and only true church on the face of the earth. There are other verses that say the term true church in the Book of Mormon and one other time in the Doctrine and Covenants, and that's it. But not in the context of the one and only true organization with God's stamp of approval, like we saw Joseph himself start defending later in life in his official history. What I think Joseph and others early on saw the restoration as was that it was the only truly living Christian religion because in their restoration beliefs they dared re-enter the divine narrative like those of old. They witnessed spiritual gifts coming back that they felt had been lost from the earth and they believed that God, like in biblical times, was speaking anew through an ongoing dialogue of revelation. They were living in a time when scripture was being written. In fact, to take it one step further, I looked it up to see what that lone verse might be responding to, and I found multiple scripture verses, Jeremiah 10, 1 Thessalonians, the Book of Mormon, and Doctrine and Covenants, that speak of God as the one true and living God. They, the church, by their estimation, was truly living because they were in a collaborative and covenantal relationship with their truly living God. As does most traditions through time, naturally the adherents are overly prone to get comfortable with the way they do things. So things don't evolve fast enough to meet the needs of the up-and-coming generations amidst a changing culture. A once-vibrant faith starts to wither in its vitality. Since we're all prone to this, we can ask the questions, are there any instances of this within the Restoration Churches? Thinking about it, it has appeared to me that in instances, some of the Restoration Traditions, in trying to keep to the early 19th century tradition, have tried to preserve and jar the spirit the early saints lived. One such practice personally, growing up in the Latter-day Saint tradition, for me, and it may not be for you, is known as the Hosanna Shout. For those that may not be overly familiar with the Hosanna Shout, I'll give the Wikipedia definition to provide a better background. It says, In the Latter-day Saint movement, a Hosanna Shout is an organized ritual by a congregation of shouting Hosanna. It was first performed as a ritual in the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, and was a part of the Kirtland Endowment Ceremony. It continues to be practiced by some Latter-day Saint denominations, most notably the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which practices the ritual at the dedication of each of its temples. The Hosanna Shout is intended to be wholesouled and given to the full limit of one's strength. The congregation stands and in unison shouts three times the words, Hosanna, 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 to God and the Lamb, then concludes with Amen, Amen, and Amen. This is done while waving white handkerchiefs with uplifted hands. One day while half-watching the History Channel, I overheard something said about Houdini that caught my attention that made me immediately think of the Hosanna shout, and something clicked. Granted, Houdini was performing his handcuff tricks at the turn of the century, but the culture he performed for wasn't entirely removed from the 1830s. One such handcuff trick Houdini performed was in 1904. In that year, the London Daily Mirror newspaper challenged Houdini to escape from special handcuffs that it claimed had taken Nathaniel Hart, 
a locksmith from Birmingham, five years to make. Houdini accepted the challenge for March 17th during a matinee performance at London's Hippodrome Theatre. It was reported that 4,000 people and more than 100 journalists turned out for the much-hyped event. The escape attempt dragged on for over an hour, during which Houdini emerged from his ghost house several times. From the adventurous life of a versatile artist Houdini, it says about this occasion, The band finished a stirring march when, with a great shout of victory, Houdini bounded from the cabinet, holding the shining handcuffs in his hand, free. A mighty roar of gladness went up. Men waved their hats, shook hands one with the other. Ladies waved their handkerchiefs. And the committee rushing forward as one man shouldered Houdini and bore him in triumph round the arena. But the strain had been too much for the handcuffed king, and he sobbed as though his heart would break. Mamie realized the Hosanna shout with handkerchiefs was a natural reaction for the saints, as each had a handkerchief on his or her person in the early 19th century, and not palm leaves like mentioned in the Bible. Now in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when a new temple is dedicated, the leaders have to tell everyone to bring a white handkerchief, since no one carries them anymore with the invention of paper toiletries. The ritual now feels a lot more forced, mechanical, and stiff. At least it always has for me. In effort to preserve this tradition by repeating it verbatim through time, in my mind it's no longer a natural reaction to an outpouring of the spirit the congregants are responding to in the moment. Some of the great struggles with all religions is how do we make this vibrant and meaningful to the younger generations? What do we do to provide experiences that renew us so that we can honestly say, we as a church are truly living? What need we do to keep us anchored in new revelation with our truly living God? How do we enter the divine narrative? In the context of the human continuum of progress, it seems to me that when we ossify ourselves to a literal interpretation of scripture or a verbatim approach to ritual, we are actually moving backwards instead of forwards, as the greater society around us is learning new truths and gaining new awareness. If we are so stuck with how things have always been interpreted, it can trap us in its own time, becoming a stumbling block, not allowing us to live in the present. If we can't address our modern concerns and what the Spirit is nudging us toward because Scripture has become an insurmountable hurdle, what do we do? At that rate, Scripture, ritual, or tradition would become calcifying instead of edifying. And I mean our faith in that regard would move us backwards because if we tried to repeat everything in Scripture, we wouldn't be responding to our contemporary culture. Whereas in the context of Scripture... It was contemporary to the culture of those who wrote them. That leads me to ask, what do we have faith in? Do we have faith in the process or the product? I'm projecting that it needs to be faith in the process of a collaborative, ongoing dialogue with God and our community to grant us further insight, and that requires study, work, and perhaps a paradigm shift. In more recent times, Grant McMurray shared a text in the Community of Christ that later became canonized as Doctrine and Covenants, section 162. In verse 2e it says, Again you are reminded that this community was divinely called into being. The spirit of the restoration is not locked in one moment of time, but is instead the call to every generation to witness to essential truths in its own language and form. Let the spirit breathe. 
Let the spirit breathe. Today is a new era. We face new challenges in our modern world. God is calling you and me to new life. Thank you for your time. This podcast is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers Team for Community of Christ. The views expressed in this podcast are the opinions of those speaking and do not necessarily represent the views, beliefs, or official stance of Community of Christ or the Latter-day Seekers Team.